what makes a Christian a Christian? There's several ways in which we could evaluate and answer that question. Um, we, we could talk about the behavior of the Christian and how the behavior of the Christian kind of sets the Christian apart from the rest of the world. Uh, or we could talk about what the Christian believes. What must a person believe in order to be counted as part of Christ's body, as a Christian, in order for a person to be evaluated by other Christians as indeed a Christian, what must a person believe? And in fact, that's the most fundamental way in which we can answer this question, what makes a Christian a Christian? Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast, a podcast found wherever you get your podcasts. If you're watching here on YouTube, please do not forget to click the subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications. Glad to have you guys. Glad to be here talking about what makes a Christian a Christian. Now, long story short, and and maybe it won't be so short, who knows? By the time we get to the end of this, we'll know exactly how long it's going to take. Um, But... Christians have always been defined by what they believe. Um, If if I were to ask you the question, uh, you know, you're a new Christian, let's say, or you've just begun professing to be a Christian, um, and you were to come into my church, and I were to ask you, how how do I know that you're a Christian? You may answer with uh, what you believe, what you profess to believe. And and the, the question that I'm basically asking is, how do I know that you're one of us, right? How do I know that you are indeed part of the body of Christ? How do I know that you are uh, that you are united to Christ? Uh, and and that question is going to be answered in part in virtue of what is professed by the one claiming to be a Christian. Now you zoom out to get the big picture, right? Uh, and you think about the church throughout the last two thousand years. Um, what has the church believed that has identified it as the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ and distinguished it from the world and from those who would cloak themselves in Christian garb, but upon final analysis, not really be Christians? What distinguishes the true church of God from those who would call themselves the church, who would call themselves Christians, and yet are not? Well, it has been doctrine. It has been what is professed as distinguished from error and heresy and heterodoxy. And so doctrine, what is believed, uh, the faith or the doctrines of the Christian faith play an integral role in what makes a Christian a Christian. If you go to Ephesians 4, we learn a great deal about what makes a Christian a Christian. There is one body and one spirit, beginning in verse 4 of that same chapter, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one faith. Um, so in addition to there being one meaning of Scripture, uh, there's there's one source of our faith, there's yet one faith, uh, one uh, conviction, one confession and profession that identifies Christians as Christians. And you can look down through history and you can see what Christians have always professed to be true. Even amidst their vast differences in many areas, there has been a golden strand of orthodoxy that has distinguished true Christians from false or heretical uh, persons who claim to be Christians like Arians uh, or Socinians or the like. 
So there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, the early church understood this. Even the church in the apostolic era understood that there was uh, one faith. Um, and uh, Paul expresses this on several uh, occasions. Twice he does so in uh, the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy. Um, one of the most obvious places is First uh, Timothy chapter three, verses six, uh, verse sixteen, which says, "And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness." The mystery of godliness for him is God was manifested in the flesh. This is a symbol, by the way, uh, or an early Christian creed. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Now, that was sufficient, entirely sufficient, and still is, uh, for Christians, uh, that we would believe that. Uh, what that means uh, the underlying meaning and substance of what is said there, for example, God, who is God? Um, uh, what does justification uh, in the Spirit mean in relation to God incarnate? Uh, what does it mean for God to be manifested in the flesh? You know, each line in this early Christian symbol could be expounded upon and could be exposited uh, in in sermon series upon sermon series, commentary upon upon commentary and systematic theology upon systematic theology. And so there's a, a very deep meaning to these words. Now, heretics come along in the first, second, third century, fourth century especially. This is why you get uh, the Council of Nicaea I in 325 AD uh, with the Arian controversy. Heretics come along and say, yeah, we believe that. Okay, they'll take, they'll, they'll, they'll take those words and they'll say, yeah, we believe that. Uh, and really, they're they're tearing those words apart from their original meaning, right? So they're just they're just saying we agree with the symbol at a very surface semantical level, um, but they're actually what they're doing. And you won't find this out until you ask them and probe them. And the, indeed, the early church didn't find this out until they ended up in debates and ended up reading their writings and allowing them to speak and so on that what they were really believing wasn't what those words actually meant. Even though they were able to take those, they were able to lift those words out of Scripture and say, yeah, we believe this, we believe the Bible. Uh, yet they were they were tearing those words apart from their, uh, apart from their deeper sense and their original meaning. And so what happens? You get a council like, you know, 325 AD, Nicaea I, that uh, comes together, Christians from all over the known world at the time, uh, and they formulate uh, a creed, and that's what is known as the Nicene Creed today, to clarify orthodoxy and the true meaning of those words in Scripture in contradistinction to or in opposition to the heretics that were wresting those words from their original meaning. And so you have creedal orthodoxy arise in the early centuries of the church in order to distinguish truth, true scriptural teaching, that comes from uh, biblical and theological reflection and exegesis of the early church, codified into creeds that will distinguish the truth from falsehood. And these creeds, seen really as uh, expansions upon the true meaning of what was already delivered to us in the scriptures, 
distinguish those who are true Christians from those who are false Christians. They distinguish the orthodox from the heterodox. So again, let's return to our initial question. What makes a Christian a Christian? For the early church, and this is why the Athanasian Creed is put in such strong language, if anyone would be saved, they must believe this. And then the creed follows on with orthodox teaching on uh, the Trinity and Christ and so on. Um, So to circle back to our question, what makes a Christian a Christian? True doctrine true faith. Expand on that a little bit more, you know, kind of back off and get the overall scope, the big picture. What makes the church the true church? And it would be what the church professes to be true. It would be the fact that this body, mentioned in Ephesians 4.4, 4, professes the true and singular faith, orthodoxy, okay? And that orthodoxy is expressed in creeds. Now, when you move up through the fourth century, and these ecumenical, what are called ecumenical creeds, have been developed in order to fend off heresy from true biblical orthodoxy, Christians begin identifying themselves as Christians through profession and proclamation of their belief in these creedal statements. And so in the early church, to reject those creedal statements, which were carefully formulated from biblical exegesis, to reject those early ecumenical creeds was to identify yourself as something other than Christian. And I would argue that throughout the history of the church, moving from those early ecumenical creeds up through the time of the Reformation and up to the present day, every Christian over the last two millennia have confessed those creeds. Now, obviously, you have Christians who lived before those early ecumenical creeds, but they were still professing and confessing the substance of those creeds, the material of those creeds, if you will, even before their formal uh, you know, formulation uh, at the councils. And so when we ask the question, what makes a Christian a Christian, and what makes the church the true church, the pillar and ground of the truth, it would be doctrine. Well, what doctrine? There's a definite faith of the Christian church. And that's what we call orthodoxy, right? And so whenever someone says, well, I don't need creeds or I don't need, you know, the tradition of the church to be a Christian because all I have is the Bible. Well, number one, the obvious, you know, the obvious red flag there is every heretic has said that. The Arians were saying that. The Socinians were saying that. Every heretic has, has said that. John Biddle in the 17th century uh, Thomas Collier in the 17th century, all these all these famous Socinian and anti-Trinitarian heretics all said that. We have the Bible. We believe the Bible. We're doing biblical interpretation here. Meanwhile, they're departing from the one faith that had been confessed by all Christians prior to that point. And so they're identifying themselves as those who are other than Christians. So bring it back again to the question, what makes a Christian a Christian? If it's doctrine, if it's the one true faith, if it's what the church professes and confesses to be the truth, then in fact, what has been confessed and professed throughout history is very, very important because it actually identifies the true church from the false church, right? Uh, and it identifies a true Christian from the false Christian. Now, let's let's add another dimension to this because in Matthew 16, Jesus promises to build his church. And we know that He's building his church on the foundation of the one faith. He's building his church on the foundation of doctrine. And the confession and profession of true Christian doctrine serves as a foundation or a bedrock 
of that church's identity that Jesus is building. And so what those uh, individuals who would say, well, I don't need creeds and I'm not beholden to any creed or any tradition whatsoever throughout Christian history, what they're actually saying is they're saying that they don't, they don't have to find themselves in the line of those who would profess the true faith. Um, that it's just they themselves and their Bible. That there's no implication on them uh, in terms of what has al always been professed throughout history. That they have no duty whatsoever to locate themselves within the stream of Orthodox Christian thought. The problem with that is the implication. And the implication is that Jesus failed to keep his promise to build his church. Again, if his church is identified by and founded upon the truth of Christian orthodoxy, the truth of Christian doctrine, then what the church has always professed to be true, and I'm talking about Christians everywhere, all Christians everywhere have always professed to be true, and to the extent they didn't confess it, they were considered to not be Christians, then what they're saying is that there is no fixed orthodoxy. There is no one faith. There is no true faith that the church has always been beholden to confess and profess. Uh, and that the true faith that the church has confessed and professed really doesn't matter at all. But see, if Jesus promised to build his church on the foundation of the truth, no less, then Christian orthodoxy is real. It's historical. It, 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 has, it has been transmitted from the first century all the way up into the 21st century now. And if that's denied, then what we would have to also deny is that the church is founded on true doctrine. The church isn't founded on true doctrine at all. Or we would have to say the church never knew true doctrine, in which case you would be hard-pressed to defend the existence of a church at all. In which case, Jesus would have failed to make good on his promise. If Jesus made good on his promise, and I believe that he did, and Christians everywhere believe that he did, then Jesus has preserved the orthodoxy of his church. Because it's upon the truth of orthodoxy that his church stands or falls. And so we would expect to be able to look back in the past and see those things that Christians everywhere have always confessed. The Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, again, all results of biblical exegesis and theological reflection. Uh, Christians have always confessed those things. And so to, to depart from that and to, to, to say that it is unnecessary to confess the content of those creedal symbols would be to deny that Jesus has pre preserved his church in, in orthodoxy. It would be to deny that Jesus has preserved his church in the truth. That's why it's so important, this, this whole theological retrieval thing and confessionalism and, and creedal Christianity is so very important because we've been taught over the last 200 years or so that, you know, it's me, myself, and my Bible. I don't need the historical church, and I'm not beholden to the historical church at all. There is no subordinate authority, and there is no, uh, there is no multitude of counselors that can help me discern what biblical truth is. It's just me. I'm sufficient in and of myself. That's what the last 200 years has taught us in terms of, you know, what we've been taught to think and how we've been taught to think.
But Jesus told us in the first century that he would build his church, most fundamentally upon the truth of, of orthodoxy, upon his truth, upon who he is, his person, his work, his Godhead and his humanity, the accomplishment of redemption, and so on. And so it, it is incumbent upon the church from the first century onward to profess and confess what Jesus has accomplished and who Jesus is. And that is what the creedal statements seek to do. And that's what Christians everywhere have always confessed and professed. They've always confessed and professed the truth about Jesus Christ, our Lord, about the Trinity, about his incarnation, about his redemptive work. It's always been there. Uh, and so it's very important uh, that we understand that there is no lone wolf Christianity doesn't exist. It's not in the Bible. You can't even find that uh, in Scripture. And uh, that a person who professes Christ is always to be uh, a person whose profession has reference to others who profess the same Christ. Why? Because Ephesians 4, one body and one spirit that works one faith in the one body, right? And so every individual Christian's profession must align with the profession of the body. And that body has existed and persisted throughout the last 2,000 years in the truth of Christian orthodoxy. Again, even amidst their differences uh, in things like ecclesiology and, uh, and, and, you know, baptism and, you know, certain things like that, even amongst those differences, yet there has been an orthodox core orthodox principles that Christians have always confessed and professed. And to depart from them is, is to depart from Christian orthodoxy. It's to depart from what Christian uh, Christians have always believed, to depart from the, uh, the uh, implication uh, of what our Lord's words are in Matthew 16, that he would build his church uh, upon the truth, which means that his church from the first century onward would, would have to be confessing the truth. And if they'd be confessing the truth from the first century onward, then, you know, symbols like Nicaea, the Apostles' Creed, and the Chalcedonian definition are all expressions of that truth. Because Christians everywhere uh, have, have been confessing those, those symbols. And so it's very important that we, that we find ourselves within that stream of thought. Because our Lord's words imply it, uh, that there would be a stream of, of true thought from his earthly ministry onwards as he builds his church through his, his sovereign activity. And that, that stream of thought would persist uh, through the church's reflection uh, on scripture and through the church's preaching, through the church's creedalizing and, and confessing, confessing of the faith. Um. So what, bring it back to the question, what makes a Christian a Christian? Well, it would be uh, true doctrine. Um, you know, we could, again, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the, of the program, we could, we could answer that question from different angles. The behavior of the Christian, you know, there are certain fruits that indicate that a person is a Christian. But in addition to the fruits that indicate that a person is a Christian, there's the bedrock of their faith, what they believe that actually accounts for those fruits, the one faith of the Christian faith, right? And, and that faith consists in doctrine, 
uh, in an apprehension of the truth of the word of God. And that apprehension of the truth of the word of God has been externalized in the church's preaching and teaching over the last 2,000 years. Everybody's been on the same page when it comes to uh, the doctrine of God, Trinity, Incarnation, uh, and Redemption. Uh, Some details have been worked out differently, but in substance, the core of orthodoxy has been present. Uh, And there's been a consistent profession and confession throughout the last 2,000 years. So again, what makes a Christian a Christian? It would, be a, it would be a person who is able to identify with, confess, and profess that same tried and true orthodoxy that has been found throughout the last 2,000 years. This is, this is bare minimum, minimum catechetical stuff. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, it's a shame that today, uh, you know, over the last 150, 150, 200 years, we've been taught to think as if none of that matters. Uh, but it does. Uh, even Martin Luther and, and the early reformers, uh, they weren't just lone wolves reading the scriptures all by themselves. Um, Luther made reference to those who came before him. Uh, Luther made reference to the historical church and the historical confession of the truth. Uh, Calvin especially did. Uh, Zwingli, uh, you know, Martin Bootser, um, moving up through the Puritans. All of them were, were creedal and confessional Christians. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, and the reason for that is, again, comes back to our Lord's words, I will build my church. That on this rock, the rock of truth, I will build my church. So the question is, if Jesus promised to build his church and the church began in the first century, has he been successful? And if we answer yes, as every Christian should, then the church has had an identifiable orthodoxy over the last 2,000 years. That's just unquestionable. Uh, again, we've been taught to think that, that it is questionable, but it's, it's not. Identifiable orthodoxy is a thing. It's very important. And, 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 and to question it, or to, to not to question it, but to, to push back against it or reject it, is, is, is to depart from that stream of thought, from that foundation upon which our Lord builds his church. Hopefully this was helpful. This is just kind of a reflection of my own, uh, you know, uh, chewing on and and considering these things. The creedal language in Scripture is very important. You know, Scripture itself gives warrant to creeds and confessions. Uh, it's part of apostolic example. And so churches, you know, in the earliest centuries of the, of the, of, of the church, Christians, in the early centuries of the church, followed that apostolic example, um, and I believe they were successful in doing so. And they pro- they produced creeds that would distinguish true Christian biblical thought from heterodoxy and and uh, heresy. And uh, and we would be wise and uh, humble uh, to to maintain that profession and confession, rather than sit here with our modernist, you know, eyes uh, thinking that we're going to revise (laughs) through our own reading. By the way, we're reading translations that are traditioned down to us, and even if you read in the original languages, you're reading a manuscript tradition, you're, you're, you're making reference to a lexical tradition, and so on. To think that we're going to revise, you know, the Christian religion uh, and what every Christian has professed and confessed over the last 2,000 years is an extremely haughty 
position uh, and track to take. Uh, rather than humbling ourselves and submitting ourselves to the wise teachers of old who spent their lives and risked their lives to distinguish the Christian church and the Christian's faith from falsehood, uh, which is where we need to be. We need to be, we need to be in, in that company, the company of the saints uh, who have always, you know, uh, professed the one true God Trinity, incarnation, redemption, and so on. We can see it through history. Very important. History is important. Um, it's important that we understand that there is an actual identity that's fixed concerning what what makes a Christian a Christian. Uh, and it's doctrine. It's the one faith of Ephesians 4. Uh, and, and the one faith isn't subjected to your intellectual musings as you go by yourself to your Bible. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. Uh, it it it's it's been around for two thousand years, and uh, and so we should always be striving to find ourselves in that, right? Rather than trying to revise it, push back against it, we need to hold high the landmarks of our fathers and not try to remove them and destroy them. Anyway, again, if this was helpful, please uh, don't forget to subscribe to the to the channel, share this uh, if it's helpful for you. Maybe it will be helpful for others. God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of your day.